Thanks to Slack for supporting industry focus. Slack is a collaboration hub for work that makes sure the right people on your team are always in the loop and key information is always at their fingertips. Learn more at slack.com. It's Monday, October 1st, and welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's financial show, we'll talk about what is disrupting the ATM, we'll talk about the good and the bad when it comes to forecasts, talk about the next recession. Yes, I know, not if, but when we have the next recession. We'll take a look at the week on Twitter, and as always, we'll have one to watch. We're going to start today with something that makes you want to say, hey now. And that's right, I'm talking about interest rates, Matt. Joining me today, I got certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, I'm not going to ask you about your Gamecocks this past weekend. It was a little bit of a bum deal, I know. Sorry about uh, that. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. On the upside, I mean, the upside for me at least, Wofford stuck at the Gardner Webb, so way to go, Terrors. Uh, we'll see how. Uh, See how things shape up this coming weekend, but uh, let's kick off the uh, discussion this week with interest rates. Um, on Wednesday, perhaps to nobody's surprise, the Fed continued uh, its measured approach in in uh, our recovering economy, raising interest rates just slightly. And uh, wanted to get your quick take on things. What uh, what you think about the move? Well, like you said, it was not a big surprise at all. Um, in addition, nothing really in the Fed's forecast was a big surprise at all. They're still planning to do one more rate hike this year and three more in 2019. And just for some context, this is the eighth time the Fed has hiked rates by a quarter point um, in the past you know, three years since they started doing this rate hike cycle. And there's a little bit more to go. It looks like interest rates are going to go up by another 1%. But it's really important to note that not every interest rate is tied to the Federal Reserve. Um, in other words... Things like credit cards and home equity lines of credit, which have variable interest rates, are generally directly tied to the Fed's action. If the Fed raises rates, you can expect your credit card interest rates to go up by the same amount, for example. On the other hand, things like mortgages, auto loans, and you know where the banks make the bulk of their money, and the, the you know the the majority of consumer debt is not directly tied to the Fed's action. Um, just for for context, I mentioned that the Fed's hiked rates eight times, total of 200 basis points. In that time, mortgage rates have gone up by about 80 basis points. So these are not one-to-one. Um, Longer-term interest rates have not quite caught up with the shorter-term ones. And from an investor's point of view, which is really what I wanted to get at, if you're a bank investor, you generally want higher interest rates. Higher interest rates mean better spreads between what the bank has to pay customers for deposits and what they can charge for lending products. So generally you want higher interest rates, but you want the, the interest rates that really, really matter to your profitability or the bank's profitability, mortgages, auto loans, et cetera, are not tied to the Fed's action and really haven't moved like many people would have expected them to. So at the beginning of this rate height cycle, all you were reading, including from people like me, was interest rates are going up. This should be good for the banks. It's a very positive catalyst. I think Bank of America actually put out something that says for a hundred basis point shift in the um, in the yield curve, they would make another three billion dollars in profit a year. But it really hasn't panned out, and the reason is when you look at long term interest rates, particularly like the ten year Treasury yield, they really haven't caught up with the Fed's 
rate hike moves. They've moved in the same direction, but not quite as much as people have thought. So why do you feel like so, why do you feel like they haven't caught up though? I mean, that's we're talking about kind of that 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 yield curve inverting, right? We always we hear about that on the news, the the yield curve inverting, and oh my God, the world's coming to an end. I mean, why why haven't those long term rates caught up with that short term action yet? Do you think? It's because, in my opinion, the market's not convinced that inflation is going to pick up and the Fed is going to have to raise much more than they think they will. Um, the yield curve is getting very, very flat right now. Um, it's you know between like two and a half percent and three percent, like across most maturities for treasuries. So that it, it's really it's gotten really flat, and the reason is just because the market's not really sold that we're entering back into a normalized interest rate environment. Yeah, and and we hear a lot. The the inflation is that that metric that has guided the Fed's actions. It seems like a lot here ever since really the the financial crisis uh, took hold, right? And and we haven't seen um, anything that has has really amounted to to what I think a lot of people thought maybe inflation was was really going to become somewhat rampant here. Uh, is, is it something that we should expect? I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not an economist. I did, uh, I did uh, some uh, economics work in college, but I mean, this stuff it really all just kind of, kind of uh, boils down to somewhat uh, some speculation here, right, Matt? I mean, what what can we expect on the inflation front? Do you think? I mean, I personally think that in a couple of years, inflation is going to start to heat up a little more than the Fed wants it to. My personal opinion. Um, having said that. Until the market's really sold on the fact that you know the the stronger economy is going to lead to inflation, I mean the long-term interest rates really haven't picked up that much. You saw it a bit today um, when they announced the Canada Trade Partnership. Um, you saw uh, the ten-year uh, yield jump today, and the reason is because things like the trade deal make the market a little more inf- more optimistic that you know things will really get going, prices will start to rise, but. Like I said, today's move is kind of small potatoes. Until you see like the ten-year really start to move, then you you won't see mortgage rates, auto loans, things like that get get too overheated, and the banks won't get the big benefits of it. As I'll talk to you a little bit more when we get to our one to watch this week, little preview. Yeah, I think if if anything else, I mean, all of this all of this really tells us that the economy is on the mend. I mean, what we've wanted to see for some time is. Somewhat tighter monetary policy, right? I mean, raise interest rates a little bit at a time. Um, that is a sign, perhaps, that things are on the mend. Uh, we, we talked about last week, of course, FICO scores are at record highs, which mean means more people are capable of borrowing. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, even with interest rates on the rise, they are still so low uh, when, when you compare them to. Some of the historical norms. I mean, going back to even even my childhood. I mean, I think I remember my mom and dad. They, they were getting mortgages on, on a house somewhere in the neighborhood of fourteen or so percent. Uh, so so let's try to keep it all in context, right? Yeah, my parents bought the house I lived in, I grew up in in nineteen eighty two, and their first mortgage rate was sixteen and a half percent. It wasn't that they had bad credit or anything. That's just what the rates were at the time. That was just the um, normal. Yeah, I think the the federal funds rate actually peaked at about about twenty one percent at one point, or in the in the early eighties. So, it, it, this is very it's still very very low. I call a normal range for the federal funds rate around you know four to five percent, and right now we're at two to two and a quarter. So, still very low from a historic standpoint. Well, I guess we'll eventually get there. 
Uh, in other news, uh, you know, I read this article last week. I thought this was pretty fascinating because it's in regard to Venmo, and we know that Venmo is a property of PayPal, one of our favorite companies here. And this article is talking about the fact that Venmo is now more popular than the ATM, the automatic teller machine that that changed the world back when I was a kid. I mean, that was the most unbelievable thing. All of a sudden, you could go to a machine and get your cash out of this. It was so convenient. No more checks. Didn't have to worry about a thing. And now, I mean, here we are in, in this day and age where cash is essentially becoming an inconvenience. And I found this to be fascinating from a number of angles but but the bottom line here is that Venmo is is really taking over in a lot of ways where where cash uh used to be king right yeah well cash has just become a lot more inconvenient when compared to the options just for example um I'm going to be at headquarters later this week and my friend of mine there and I will share an Uber from the airport I'll probably pay for it, and he'll Venmo me his part. That's a lot more convenient than having our Uber driver stop at an ATM, him getting cash out of the ATM, getting changed somewhere, and then giving me his half. So people are just finding the convenience in this to be really, really useful. And it's not just millennials. This is kind of creeping into the older generations as well, really seeing the value of this. Um, from an investor standpoint, this one of the most most more interesting things I see in this story is that one of the big advantages that the big banks have are their vast ATM networks. And this advantage may be going away. Um, if Wells Fargo tells one of their customers, we have you know 5,000 or whatever ATMs you can use for free around the country, someone who uses Venmo all the time would say, so what? <laughs> so this could be a big, could, a big advantage going away for the big banks who have you know, relied on their, you know, vast ATM networks. I actually think Wells Fargo is like 10,000 or something. Probably, but, yeah. Yeah. But, it's, it, but the point is, it's, that's a big, that was a big advantage. As you said, it was the coolest thing 20, 30 years ago to be able to just get cash from an electronic machine outside of a bank. And now, not so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out uh, how how to avoid getting cash, but but when I do need cash, and interestingly enough, because I, I rarely frequent an ATM anymore. I mean, I guess if I need to get a large amount of cash for whatever reason, but I, I'm finding more and more if I if I need just a little bit of cash in my wallet. I mean, I'll I'll take a little cash back when I'm at the grocery store or something. So more and more, I find myself just very rarely going to the ATM. And when it comes to Venmo, I think this is fascinating. One of the reasons why we like PayPal so much is because it's not just PayPal anymore. I mean, everybody knows PayPal, but but Venmo is also part of PayPal. And and I was reading through, uh, you know, in a, a recent investor call with PayPal, they were talking about Venmo monetization. And Venmo is still a very young business in in the context of of what PayPal has to offer. It does skew younger, as you mentioned. So so they're working on that monetization mo model, and they have three ways that they're doing that right now. One of them is instant cash withdrawal. Another is using the Venmo debit card, and then the other is actually Venmo a customer shopping at a merchant. So they, it seems like they're taking this somewhat slowly, somewhat methodically, uh, in order to first and foremost provide the convenience that people are really after. And if those three monetization strategies sound familiar, it's because they they sound a lot like what Square is doing too, right? Yeah, with this Square Cash app, I was actually just going to bring that up. Uh, you have Venmo, Square Cash. The bank's answer to this has been Zelle, which has actually picked up a lot of traction on its own. 
but the whole trend it's it's making ATMs obsolete and it's like you said it's not just Venmo actually Square Cash recently surpassed Venmo in total downloads. Yeah. Um Square Cash isn't quite as popular in terms of like, you know, check splitting at least in my circles it's not. But it does have the potential to really, you know, even amplify this, you know, non-dependence on ATMs even more. Like I could I think I've been to an ATM twice in the past year. Yeah, yeah, and you know another thing I was reading up here today earlier, um, a company that just went public called Eventbrite um, has a a relationship they forged with Square, and that is something that's going to go on for the next five years as it as it takes hold in 2019. And Eventbrite is is basically you know ticket purchasing for live events. So I can only imagine that we're going to see Square more and more get into that Venmo-like game, ticket, uh, being able to sort of break down finances, split finances and whatnot, particularly if, if they're in uh, that, that market like live events where friends might go together. Um, really interesting interesting way to look at, at how finance is moving around. And then also with PayPal, uh, a little while back, they acquired a, a small company called Zoom, which was one of my favorites here. We got it in million-dollar portfolio for a while before PayPal jumped in there and acquired it immediately. And Zoom was in the business of outbound remittance, which is basically anybody who works here in the United States but has family located in international locations, Philippines, China, Mexico, wherever it may be. And then Zoom built this really terrific model for outbound remittance that PayPal snapped up quickly. So, I think that's really one of the attractive parts about PayPal. And I think Square, too, is they have a number of different ways to win, and they're helping dictate this 21st century monetary money moving around. I mean, I think it's just amazing to see how things have changed in such a short period of time. Yeah, definitely. And it's also kind of worth pointing out that it's not just the Venmo and Square Cash, like person-to-person payments that are killing ATMs. Square's payment processing hardware is also killing ATMs because it's used in all these places that you used to have to get cash for. (laughs) Like when I used to go to like a festival, I would have to, you know, stop and get whatever me and my wife needed for food and drinks while we're there. Now everyone takes, takes cards through their little Square readers. So between the two trends, ATMs might really be on the way out. Yeah, it's fascinating. Even food trucks. We get all of these school events and food trucks all now. They don't even worry about cash. They just uh, they, they take Square and everybody pays with their phones and it just works out wonderfully. Uh, let's take a look here real quick at another article I was reading over the week. It's something from eMarketer and it was in specific it was talking about Snap, the parent of Snapchat and Anybody who knows me knows that I've been bearish on this company since they went public. I mean, it's just not a lot to like about it, really, in all honesty. But um, I, I don't want to talk about Snap specifically. I want to talk about forecasts. Unfortunately for Snap, they're going to be the example here. Um, and I'll go ahead and read here. This year, we estimate that Snap will generate $662.1 million in net U.S. ad revenue, lower than the $1.03 billion dollars eMarketer had projected last March. We now expect that Snap will not break the $1 billion in U.S. ad revenue until 2020. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring this up uh, is just because there's a good investing angle here. I think there's a bigger lesson at play, and um, I, I, I thought it'd be you know, an opportunity for us to both share our opinions here, at least on on how we look at these forecasts. Because I know 
from a personal perspective, when I'm when I'm looking at an investment, I, I, one of the bigger lessons I've learned in investing over the years is to take these forecasts with a, with a really big grain of salt. And it's it's very easy to look at these forecasts and make it fit your narrative and think, oh man, this there's just the sky's the limit. There's so much they can do. But really, at the end of the day, these are just forecasts, and even companies that are focusing on those specific markets, I mean, they can get those forecasts dead wrong. And I mean, I think, you know, e-marketers stepping out in front of you and saying, hey, we got this one wrong. What do you look for, particularly when it comes to financial companies? When you see these types of forecasts, what's what are some of the thoughts that enter your mind when you first see them? Well, generally, I tend to put more stock in the near-term forecasts. Um, it's, it's mathematical fact that the further out you forecast something, the less accurate it's going to be. Um, so, I tend to put a lot more stock in what's going to happen, say, you know, next quarter than I do over the next three years. Um, in addition, the, I find that the, the newer and faster growing a company is, the, least, the less reliable its forecasts are. Um, I mean, with, with Amazon, for example, a lot, of, a lot of analysts got their sales forecasts completely wrong. Same with Square, one that we always cover. Um, when it comes to big established companies, like if Bank of America, forecast, if I see a forecast of what they're going to earn next year, okay, I probably will believe it. It's within a couple percentage. But a company like Square, a company like PayPal, take it with a big grain of salt. It's kind of what an analyst's best opinion is. And analysts get things wrong all the time. They are, their educated guesses are probably a lot better than mine, but <laughs> that's why they're analysts. But it's still not, a, they don't, no one has a crystal ball that can tell you what a company's going to earn what competitive dynamics are going to creep up in the market, which I think has been SNAP's big problem. Just the com competition's really just eaten into their market share. So, especially a few years down the road, no one can tell you what the competitive landscape in an industry is going to look like two years from now. So, dynamics like that can really make forecasts unreliable. So, take them as part of the bigger picture. Use, use them in conjunction with a few other investing metrics that you rely on. Yeah, I like that. That's they're not all created equal. I think you make a great point there, and that the the bigger, more established companies just certainly depends on what market they're in. Um, but those will be a little bit more, a little bit easier to forecast versus some new startup. That I mean, those businesses may very well look considerably different just even in two to three years uh, time. And I think we have just countless examples of that. Um. So so yeah. When it, when it comes to forecasts, I think uh, probably err on the side of being a little bit more conservative. Uh, I like to typically just lop off about thirty percent of that of that estimate right off the top, just as a rule of thumb. But again, I think to your point, that is that is workable, right? Depending on the company and and the size of the market. Yeah, it's definitely a valuable tool. Just use it in combination with other metrics that you like to rely on. Don't just Look at the forecast and make your investing decision based on that. Before we continue, thanks to Slack for supporting industry focus. Slack is a collaboration hub for work, whatever work you do. With Slack, the right people on your team are kept in the loop, and the information they need is always at their fingertips. Teamwork on Slack happens in channels, letting you organize conversations and information around projects, offices, and teams. And because everything you need to work is in one place, it's faster and easier to get things done. So, here's what all this means, people. Fewer emails, it saves time, it's easy to use, it goes wherever you go. 
I mean, there's really no we, there's no reason why you shouldn't be using Slack because when you get right down to it, with Slack, your team is better connected. And Matt, I mean, this is what our third show I think together. I have we even, have we even emailed each other? I think maybe once or twice. I think you emailed me the first day you found out you were doing the show, and, I, and since then we've communicated on Slack. The rest of it's going on on Slack, and I mean, you're not getting this quality show on email, folks. You're only getting it on Slack. To find out more, visit slack.com. Okay, Matt, let's talk about recessions. It seems like we just came out of one, but that really was actually a long time ago now. Um, it was just a really bad one, wasn't it? <laughs> so, we, we, we have a lot that we learn from that. But um, I, you know, I was reading an article, I, I, and I, I had an interview with KABC Radio last week, and we were talking about this article in the New York Post, which posited that the next recession we hit is going to be worse than the Great Depression, and there's basically nothing we can do it. Uh, nothing we can do about it. Now, now the reasons are myriad, and economists, as as you and I know, love to prognosticate. But I, I found this to be a very interesting discussion because the first thing that came to my mind when when we had this interview was, well, we're going to have another recession. I mean, it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when. So, uh, I mean, does the size really matter? I don't know. What do you think? Well, continuing our discussion of forecasts, remember that headlines like that and project projections like that are forecasts. So take them with a big grain of salt. No one can tell you how bad a recession is going to be. And two other things, no one can tell you when it's going to come. Um, could a recession happen later this year? Sure. Could a recession come two years from now when the market's gone up another 20%? Of course. So don't stop investing in the meantime because you think a recession's going to come. Second thing, no one can tell you what's going to cause it. If you had told somebody 15 years ago that, you know, mortgage derivatives were going to be responsible for the near collapse of the financial markets, no one would have believed you. So there are a bunch of things that kind of look a little bubbly right now. There's the, um, a lot of the lending markets, auto lending in particular, uh, the subprime auto market looks really dangerous right now. Um, they're pretty much doing the same thing with subprime auto loans that they did with mortgage loans before the Great Recession. Uh, subprime loans. auto loans. Good Lord, man. That just sounds like the danger uh, yeah, zone. <laughs> one, out of, one out of every four auto loans made right now is made to somebody who's considered subprime or deep subprime. Aye. And they're packaging these and selling them you know, as quality products like they were doing with mortgages. Um, there's other things too, like student debt is, I don't have to tell anybody that is becoming a real bubble, uh, cryptocurrencies. There's a lot of speculation that when that market, if, if that market bursts, it could really, you know, kill the economy just because the millennial generation is disproportionately invested in those. And that could be a big mess. Um, and tech stocks that seem to go nowhere, but up are, some of them are starting to look a little bit frothy. So the point is no one can tell you what's going to you know, cause the next big market drop. So don't stop investing. Definitely don't sell your positions. But if you're worried that, yes, we've been in the longest bull market ever, it could be a good idea to play a little defense, start, you know, maybe keep a little bit more cash on the sidelines that you, than you normally do. That's what I'm doing right now and advising people who I advise to do. Um, and just kind of stay I, in my opinion, if you're if you're worried about a recession, stay away from aggressive stocks. I tend to put more of my money in defensive names, uh, real estate investment trusts, dividend aristocrats, things like that. 
if I'm worried that the stock market's a little overvalued. And that's served me very well in the past. So don't stop investing, but there are some good ways you can prepare for it. Yeah, I like all that thinking right there. I think you keyed in on a lot of good points there, and, and you know, don't panic. Obviously, that that makes a big difference. We talked about last week um, a, a bright spot for homeowners. Homeowners are a little bit richer this year than they were last year. Um, on average, we we had mentioned that homeowners' equity had bumped up around thirteen percent. So. Uh, homeowners on on average here in the country are feeling about sixteen thousand dollars richer or whatever, but that led us into I think another discussion there, and I think you and I both were in agreement there that that equity, you know, that man don't spend that stuff on frivolous things like don't tap your home equity and go travel. That's a great defensive position to hold if we ever run into. Uh, a nasty recession. I mean, obviously, in a recession, housing valuations are going to go down, and that that'll be uh, something you have to address as well. But but you certainly don't want to be caught in the position of that valuation going down, and then you have a lot of of debt outstanding on a second or God forbid even third mortgage, right? Yeah, like let's say you have you know you own forty percent of the equity in your home. If the, your housing price goes down thirty percent, you still have positive equity. You still have you're not underwater. Whereas if you only have, say, 10% equity in your house and the market goes down 30%, you're really underwater. You can't afford to move if you want to move, not, not to mention being able to borrow from the home. So it's a really big luxury to have a nice cushion, especially if you're concerned about going into a recession. Always be prepared, folks. It's a matter of when, not if. Okay, this week on Twitter, we have a couple of folks I wanted to uh, spotlight here. And first, we have at FadeOutAndroid, who asks, After listening to your comments on Industry Focus this past week, what do you think about MasterPass from MasterCard and Visa Checkout from Visa as competitors to PayPal? I keep on getting promotions and seeing their logo next to PayPal on online sites that I shop on. Um, I thought this was a good question. Thanks, uh, Fade Out Android. And I did a little digging into both MasterPass and Visa Checkout. I, they're they're obviously very huge, very big networks in Visa and Mastercard. And I wouldn't dismiss those companies as competitors on any level. I think where Mastercard and Visa have fell short, where they've fallen short, is is uh, they haven't been able to make the investments in the the mobile interface on the tech side like PayPal has been able to do. And furthermore, we were talking about Venmo earlier on in the show. There, there is an up and coming consumer that is very familiar with that Venmo interface, with that PayPal interface, with that Square interface. They are not familiar with that MasterPass and Visa checkout interface, and the numbers bear that out. I mean, you have obviously a number of users there, but but they just aren't. Um, gaining the same traction. So while I wouldn't um, put put anything past them on the competitive level, it it doesn't seem like they are they are holding as much traction as these younger players. What about you, Matt? No, and just kind of to put the scale in perspective is really important in response to this question. Just to to give you some perspective, PayPal has about 180 million active users. That's ten times more than the nearest competitor, and the nearest competitor is not MasterPass or Visa Checkout. It's Apple Pay. So, Visa is, or I'm sorry, PayPal is much, much bigger than either of those two. And PayPal is estimated to have about 70% of the, the market in terms of those checkout features. So, 
while it's a competitor, like you said, yes, it's growing faster than PayPal. Yes, just because of its size. Um, you know, PayPal can't grow at a you know ninety percent annual rate <laughs> right now. But it's I don't think it's a competitive threat. PayPal was the first mover in the space. Um, like you said, people are familiar with it. I have several Visa cards in my wallet right now. I can't tell you what the Visa checkout interface looks like. Um, so, but I can tell you what the PayPal interface looks like and how to navigate it. So it they were they had the big first mover advantage, which in fintech is everything. So, it PayPal's lead is just too great. Several Visa cards in your wallet, Matt. When you get here to full HQ later this week, I expect dinner to be on you. Right. Uh, <laughs> second tweet here we have at PG Naum. I hope I'm saying that right. P G N A O U M. Um, and PG Naum asks, I don't know if you've ever talked about this on the show, but why isn't American Express in the MVP's basket or the War on Cash basket? My best guess is that it just doesn't work with the acronym. Uh, Good question, <laughs> Matt. You and I talked about this on Slack a couple of weeks ago, and honestly, it had nothing to do with the acronym. I mean, the war on cash and the MVPs thing all was sort of after the fact, but really, it just boiled down to having to make a cut somewhere. I, I was coming up with an idea for this basket. I decided it was going to be four holdings, and and I really wanted to have two stayed names in there. Uh, you know, a couple of of growthier names, one being a little bit higher on the risk the risk scale than the other, and and so it just worked out. I mean, Mastercard and Visa are are the the cards that are most widespread out there. Uh, very very attractive high margin businesses. American Express has done a whole heck of a lot um, with this business. I think, especially ever since the financial crisis. I mean, we saw them turn into a bank holding company. They had that closed loop system, which really gives them. Uh, the opportunity to learn more about customers, and I think they've dealt with uh, the the as, as merchants are demanding lower transaction fees. I think American Express has has, has dealt with that uh, pretty well. So it wasn't really anything against American Express. It was just I had to make the cut somewhere, and American Express just didn't make it. But man, I know you like American Express. I do. I'm a shareholder, but I at the same time I I would agree that Master Mastercard and Visa are the have done a better job in the technology side of the business. They've definitely been the more tech, the more fintechy of the, of the three. So I could see why you would include them and leave Amex, you know, in the boring stocks pile or <laughs> wherever you put it. <laughs> well, maybe maybe there'll be room to add them one day. I don't know. We'll see. I'm pretty protective of that MVP's brand, though. Um, okay, as as always, uh, we have uh, one to watch as we wrap up this week. Uh, stock we have on our radar. For whatever reason, could be good, could be bad. Matt, tell me what you want to watch this week. Well, I've mentioned it a couple times so far this show. Bank of America. Um, the reason I like it, I mentioned that uh, long-term interest rates really haven't caught up with short-term ones yet. If they do, Bank of America stands to benefit more than any of the other big banks. The reason being, they have a higher proportion of what are known as interest-free deposits, meaning you know, in a savings in a savings account that doesn't bear interest. So they have no cost of money on the, of the money on those accounts and can loan it out at market rates. So as those market rates rise, you'll see the spreads widen faster for Bank of America than for any of the other big banks. And I think that that's coming in the next few years. I think there's a lot of catching up to do for long-term rates. Pay attention to the 10-year Treasury, like I said. But I think when that catches up, Bank of America will be the big beneficiary out of the out of the big banks. Okay, and what's the ticker for Bank of America? BAC. 
Okay, I'm going to dig back to a company we talked a bit about last week. We had a uh, headline that broke this this past weekend. Uh, Facebook, ticker is FB. I know this isn't a financial company, so to speak, but it really ties back to the subject that we covered on Facebook and banks. Uh, Facebook has, has historically, it seems, been trying to work more closely with banks, get a little bit more of, of banks' data. And, and to me, this data breach that we found out here, uh, we found out about on, on Friday, I think it was, it was another 50 million or so accounts. And to me, when it comes to Facebook, I mean, this is just something that you have to expect, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Messenger or whatever. I think data breaches are just part and parcel of this of this market. And so to me, in looking in looking a little bit further and thinking about Facebook and their relationship with banks, I mean on the one hand, banks banks have every incentive in the world to keep your data secure. I mean, that's really what they're in the business of doing, or at least trying to do. They have the incentive to try to keep your data secure. And if you look at Facebook's business model, I mean, their incentive is is completely the other way around. Really, their incentive is to get your data out there and try to sell as many ads as possible using that data. And so to me, I just feel like when you talk about Facebook and banks, you talk about two industries where where the the incentives are just never going to be aligned. And that's why I would never ever look at Facebook as a potential play in the financial space, not to say it can't be a successful investment in other ways, but but when it comes to Facebook and in banks, I think that conversation needs to remain closed. That's just my two cents, Matt. Matt, I think that's going to do it for this week. I appreciate you coming on, as always. Of course. I'll look forward to being up there later this week. Yeah, man, absolutely. Beer's on me. Excellent. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week.